Lord, I do thank you for this time that we have to spend in your word. And uh, I pray that you would illuminate it to us. Uh, I pray that you would be with Pastor Bill as he continues to finish his uh, final arrangements for his trip. And uh, that you would bless it and that uh, him and Patty would be safe on it. And again, Lord, open our eyes to your word and uh, help us to be sensitive to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to open up to Zechariah, we're going to go through chapters 3 and 4 this morning. I'm going to give you a little background, as always. So after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the Jews under direction by Cyrus the Great of Persia are given release to return to their homeland. And upon this release, 50,000 people of more than several hundred thousand return. Um, And uh, Cyrus actually commands them to build the temple. And this isn't unusual for Persians. Persians were very... um, superstitious. So if they heard that the Hebrew God is telling them to rebuild the temple, and many people believe that Daniel confronted him and showed him the prophecy in Isaiah where he's mentioned by name, that they took it very seriously. And it wasn't just the Hebrew, but they would take anything seriously. And so that's why uh, he allowed them to return because he wanted to be blessed by as many gods as he could. He didn't necessarily have a personal belief, but he took it very seriously. The Samaritans, however, upon, the Israel's, upon Israel's return, discouraged the people, and for 15 years, the temple lays waste. Now, during this time, the Lord had caused drought and several other agricultural plagues to happen, and this is simply because they, they weren't obedient. They didn't continue in building the temple. Now, upon this, Haggai comes on the scene and encourages the people to begin building again. And 23 days after he gives this message, on the 24th day, they begin building the temple again. Now, two months after this, Zechariah comes on the scene. And they're building the temple. They're doing what they should do, but they don't have a full heart behind it yet. This is why Zechariah's first message to them is, return to me and I will return to you. He wants them to return, not just with an outward working, but with their heart. He wants their heart behind it. Now, once God is able to set their hearts right, they can begin with not just building the temple, but they can rebuild their relationship with him as well. And that's really what the key is. Now, I mentioned last week that nine times in chapter one, it says, Lord Almighty. Now, in the entire book, Lord Almighty is mentioned 53 times in 14 chapters. And again, that's a sign that God is saying, Lord Almighty, I am sovereign. I am in control. I am over everything. I have the power. You don't have to worry about it. And again, 53 times in 14 chapters. He then, after that, shows them a vision of horns and craftsmen. Now, the horns are biblical symbols of power, and they usually represent a nation or a ruler. And you can see this in Amos 6 and Daniel 7. And there were four great world powers responsible for scattering the nations to the Jews, and that's what these horns represented. Now, the craftsmen that come after them, they seem to correspond to the horns, and they're sent to destroy those nations, those horns, who have scattered Israel and Judah. Now, when you look at verses 18 through 21, it does seem like each one of these horns becomes a craftsman to destroy the previous horn. 
Now, God's purpose in showing them this vision was so that his people could realize he was, as I said, sovereign over all creation and that it was him alone who was responsible for their standing exactly where they were in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple at that moment. Now, the next vision he gives them in chapter two, there's someone measuring Jerusalem. He's measuring the the width, the length, the breadth, they're just measuring Jerusalem And they look at that and go, well, why is he measuring Jerusalem? And the point behind it was, we got to measure to make sure it's big enough for everybody that's going to come. Now, nobody was really living in Jerusalem at the time. It was still an abandoned city. They were rebuilding the temple, but Jerusalem was in ruins. There was rubble everywhere. There was really no place to live. In fact, they had to cast lots, and I believe it's in Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't remember which one right now. They had to cast lots to see who was actually going to move back to Jerusalem because a lot of them had fields that they were taking care of outside the city. So it was, it was still an abandoned city for the most part. But God promises them, look, it's abandoned now, but it's going to be so full at one point that the walls can't even contain the people. But that's not going to matter, God says, because I'm going to be the fire around you. I'm going to be your wall. I'm going to be your protection. I'm going to dwell in the midst of you. So he wants to give them that encouragement. Look, it looks bleak, but don't worry. I'm sovereign. I've got it under control. I'm going to take care of it. And the next vision at the end of the chapter, he says, daughter Zion, which is a way he talks to Israel. I want you to come out of Babylon. I want you to come home. And he's telling them this because he plans on judging Persia, who was one of the horns, and he doesn't want them to be caught up in it. Now that brings us to chapter three. Now chapter three is where we see spiritual warfare going on. We see from Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Now, we see a lot of those battles in Daniel. Um, We see some in Kings. We we see throughout the Bible, especially in Daniel, though, a lot of behind-the-scenes spiritual warfare. We see angels and battles the angels doing. Sometimes we see chariots of fire. But all those things are going on in the background. And it's very easy for us because we don't get those visions a lot. I would have loved to have been the servant who got to see the chariots of fire surrounding the mountain because that would have bolstered something in me. But... We don't get to see those things. And a lot of times it becomes easy to brush those things off because we're so horizontal in what we're looking at. We all see the things around us. We don't always see the up, the vertical of what God has for us. But then again, that's why scripture is good to remind us of those things. It's necessary. Now we're told in first Peter five, eight to be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we have to constantly be vigilant. So when the devil telegraphs his attacks, you can be ready. Now, I bring this up because Mariah is in, well, the four oldest kids are in uh, karate. They're in what's called uh, chunkukdo, which is Chuck Norris's style. And Mariah competed recently. It is Chuck Norris because that would be the best because he's Chuck Norris. She competed recently in El Centro. I think it was about a month ago. And she got third place in sparring for her division. And so I told her 
let's practice. You can do better next time. She's all, I can't do that, Dad. I don't want to hurt you. <laughs> I said, I think I can handle it. Let's spar. And I don't know anything, and I willingly admit I know nothing. I'm pretty much a dog fighter when it comes to that kind of thing. My brother took fencing at one point, and I would fence with him, and he goes, you're hard to fight, not because you know anything, but because you just go for it. I was like, well, at least I still got you, though. Um, and again, I will admit, I'm not skilled at that kind of thing. I like doing it. I'm not skilled at it, though. But so we were sparring in the living room, and we didn't break anything. We're going back and forth, and I'm watching her, and she does about three or four different moves, and she's just doing the same things over and over again. So I'm like, okay, well, I can block this because I know exactly what she's doing. And this is what Satan does. He thinks, well, I'm going to catch him off guard. I'm going to make sure they can't see where I'm coming from. But we actually know what his tactics are. We just got to stay in the word, and we can see what he's going to do, and we can deflect the same way. And we see what Jesus did when he was attacked. He used the word. And it's the same way. We just got to be vigilant. We got to learn how to spot it. In fact, I asked her instructor, I said, show me what I'm looking for when she learns something new. I want to know how I can see where she's going from, whether she's going to kick or, and he was telling me different things. He's a third degree black belt, but um, just trying to learn how to block her. And that's how we need to learn how to block the devil as well. Now he likes to tempt us, one of his strategies, with the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And we see that in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. But once we succumb to those things, he likes to make us feel worthless, filthy, and someone that God couldn't possibly want to use. And he always, afterward, stands to accuse us once he can get us to fall. And that's where we're going to lead into chapter 3 right here. So verse 1 says... Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and, sta and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. This is the nature of Satan. This is what he does. He's there to accuse us always. In fact, it says in Revelation 12:10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, Satan, who accuses them, before our God, day and night, has been hurled down. So that's where he is. He's constantly accusing us of things we've done. Now, Joshua here, he's a high priest, and he represents the nation of Israel. When he stands before the angel of the Lord, it doesn't mean he's necessarily up in heaven. In the vision, he is ministering in the temple itself. Because when we're ministering before God, we are standing in his presence. He's, I don't believe he's literally in the throne room. Now, You'll find that whenever you commit yourself more to the Lord, whether it's, Lord, I'm going to wake up early and read your Bible. I'm going to wake up and pray an extra 30 minutes. I want to serve in this capacity, or I want to go to this mission field. You'll find that that's when the real battles begin. Because if you're not doing anything, you're really not much of a threat to Satan. It's when you begin to go, Lord, I want to do this, that he goes, okay, I couldn't possibly have them be successful because... I'm not going to get as many people to follow me. So that's when the fight begins. But I also believe this is what Paul's referring to as the good fight. He says, I have fought the good fight of faiths. Paul was always ministering. In fact, he said, woe is to me if I do not preach the gospel. He knew what he was called to do, and he couldn't possibly do anything different. 
But he fought a lot, and he paid the price a lot with his body as well. But he said, I fought it. I fought the good fight, and I don't regret it. He said, and I don't mind being poured out as that drink offering for God, because he knew what his reward was. In fact, it says in that same verse, which I can't tell you exactly, it's 2 Timothy 3, that he was going to get a crown in heaven for the sacrifice. Now, Satan's warfare, he will get us to try to sin personally, but he will also try us to get us to bicker amongst each other. And he's very successful a lot of times in churches. And, you know, I, having six children, they fight over the stupidest, stupidest things ever. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But they will sit there. and And you know what? I do remember my sister and I do this as well. He's looking at me. And my kids do the exact same thing. He's looking at me. And I'm so fed up. I'm like, well, maybe you look funny. And I just, you know, it's just the stupidest things like that. And it, it rubs me the wrong way. But at the same time, I'm like, ah, well, of course they're bickering. Of course they're doing this. They're stuck in this body of flesh. But I still got to teach them. And so, you know, all these things. But... It's the flesh that's doing it. It's the, it's the flesh that Satan uses to try to get us to separate from each other so that we're ineffective. And we want to make sure as best we can there are no idle quarrels among us so that we can be in the real fight for souls because that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. I've heard Pastor Bill say that churches have split over the color of carpet before. And I thought, that is dumb. I don't... I don't understand that. When my wife and I got married and we were trying to decide what color our room was going to be, and I said, what color do you want it to be? And she said, purple. And so we had a purple walls with purple curtains. And I was, and for me, I was like, no, there's worse things it could be. So I was like, that's fine. If she wanted glittery curtains with unicorns, we would probably have that. It's just... Those kind of things, they're not worth the separation. They're not worth the argument. But that's why we're all different. That's why we need to realize we're the body of Christ and each one of us is gifted differently. We have different personalities. I'm sure that my personality rubs people the wrong way. Not everybody. Some people think I'm quirky and funny. Other people think I'm annoying. And that's fine. You don't have to hang out with me. Right now you have to listen, but you don't have to hang out with me. But we want to concern, our things with the thing, concern ourselves with the things that are important and not get into the bigger battles that Satan wants us to, to be distracted by. Luckily, the enemy is on a chain, and God only lets him go so far. And God's never going to let us be tempted beyond what we're able to stand. He's always going to give us a way of escape. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people recently And there is a lot of spiritual warfare going on. We don't see it, but there's a lot of people going through struggles and trials. And that's Satan just beating us down, trying to make us ineffective. But that's where we go, you know what? It's not about my strength, Lord. It's about me relying on you picking me up and pushing me through it and pulling me through it. And 
you know, it seems like we're between a rock and a hard place sometimes. You know, and I, I read a quote recently by C.S. Lewis, and it's, honestly, it's my favorite non-Bible quote now. C.S. Lewis said, my prayer is that when I die, and I quote, posted this on Facebook a week ago, I think, my prayer is that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I am out of the fight. That's how effective I want to be. That's how effective I want all of us to be. And if this quote is something we strive for, there's going to be a revival in the church. And that's what we need to hope for. Verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? There's three things we see in this chapter. Three things, or I'm sorry, this verse. First thing is how you overcome the evil one. Now, Jude 1.9 uses a similar phrase here. In Jude 1.9, it tells us that Michael the archangel used this same phrase in battling Satan. In fact, he says, uh, in fact, it actually just says the Lord rebuke you because he's fighting over the body of Moses in that verse. And the example here of the angel of the Lord and of Michael shows us the actual model for our spiritual warfare, and that is that we should always battle with the Lord's authority. I don't have any authority. There's nothing important or special about me that Satan's going to go, ooh, I better back up for Eric. He's not going to do that. He only backs up for Christ. In fact, if you remember back in Acts, I can't remember if we've read it already, there's a, the sons of Sceva. Now they said, uh, and they were trying to cast out demons, and they were trying to cast out demons by the God that Paul was preaching. And they said, Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? And they basic, the demon basically attacked all seven sons of Sceva and sent them out of the house naked because they didn't have any power. Now, Paul had power only because he had Christ's authority. The only authority we have is also from Christ. Now, I say that in that God has given us no greater authority in our life to live by than his word. He has lifted it above even his own name, according to Psalm 138.2. That's why we need to be diligent to study so we can battle as Jesus did. Because Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if we are living that way, then we can attack, then we can defend against Satan's attack. It also says to pray without ceasing in First Thessalonians 5.17. Just praying constantly. You don't have to sit down for three hours. If you can sit down for three hours in prayer, that's fantastic. I have not been able to do that yet, but I do pray throughout the day. A lot of times someone at work may come up and say, hey, Eric, this just happened to me if you keep me in prayer. And they'll walk away. And in that two minutes as I'm doing something else or walking to where I need to go, I'll pray for them then because I know if I try to wait, I'll probably forget. So I will pray throughout the day. So if you've ever said something to me about pray for something, it's a good chance within that last five minutes, I've probably prayed for it. And then I'll wait later for God to bring it to my mind again so I can continue to pray. But praying without ceasing, staying in his word. Those are the authorities that he's given us, the things he's given us, the tools to withstand the devil. Now, the second thing I see is that we have an advocate with the father. And again, we have a courtroom scene for us here. And there's a lot of those in scripture because I've brought this up before. Joshua is the defendant. God is the judge. 
Satan is the prosecution, and the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, is the defense attorney. Satan had a lot to accuse Joshua of, and the nation of, both past and present. And as we see from the next verse, it's because he is filthy with sin. But Jesus is the high priest, and he is constantly interceding for us, is what it says in Hebrews, I believe. And he's constantly giving us the grace to serve him, despite the fact that we fall into sin. Now, he's the advocate. It says in 1 John 2, 1 to 2, my little children, these things I write to you, and there's three reasons he writes 1 John. This is the second one. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, of the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He is there as our advocate, always there as our advocate, always on the sidelines. Well, not on the sidelines. He's always there in the, whatever you call it, the defense desk to counteract whatever Satan is saying. Now, the next thing I see is the value of man. Now, Satan will say that we are useless. We are like this piece of burnt wood. It says, a burning stick snatched from the fire. Now, Joshua is a burning or burnt or a smoldering piece of wood. You've got to think of a campfire with a blackened, charred chunk piece of wood smoking in it. Smoking in the ashes. And it isn't worth much. And it will be consumed completely if it's left there. If it's not plucked from the fire. Now there's a similar picture used in Isaiah 7. When Isaiah goes to Ahaz, the king of Judah. And Jerusalem at this time is surrounded. It's got Syria on one side. It's got Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel on the other. And they're surrounded. And they basically say, look, you're going to join us against Assyria or we're going to kill you. We're going to set up Tabil as king in your place, a puppet king who's going to do what we want. And Ahaz, who's not a good king at all by any way, shape, or form, he's actually a wicked king, says, no, I'm going to go to Assyria. But Isaiah says, no, 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 don't do this. Ask a sign from God, and he's going to deliver you. Just ask the highest of heavens that it could be. doesn't matter how big it is. Ask of God. It's not testing God. Just ask. He wants to prove himself to you. And Ahaz tries to be self-righteous and goes, no, I couldn't possibly do that. But what happens is Isaiah said, that's where Isaiah gives the prophecy of the virgin birth. Um, and after he does that, he gives a short, then, and the virgin birth is a long prophecy, a long-sighted prophecy away. It was several hundred years away. And then he gives a short prophecy where he says, look, within two years, these two countries are going to be smoking brands. They're going to be worthless chunks of sticks, not good for anything. And that's what he describes them as. And that's the same description here. It's a smoking brand. Something pluck, if you don't pluck it out of the fire, it's going to be burned up. And that's how he's describing Joshua. He said, look, he may look worthless, but I've plucked him from the fire because I have a plan for him. And that's the same thing with us. Apart from Christ, we don't have anything. We're not anybody. We're special creation. But if we step apart from Christ, are we not just dust? Before he pulled us from the fires of hell, 
We were those smoking brands going to be burned up. Verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. In verse 3, we see the filthiness of sin. Now Joshua as high priest represents, as I said, the nation to God. And he represents God to the nation. Yet he is filthy. And it's not just a picture of him, but of the state of the nation. Now, the priest's garments, I don't remember the exact description in Exodus, but they were designed for beauty and honor or something to that effect. They were designed to be beautiful and to represent the holiness of God. But he is filthy. Now, about that word, filthy. Now, Isaiah in 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Now in Isaiah, the Hebrew for filthy rags is used menstrual cloths. That's what it is. That's how sin is described. Now in Zechariah, he uses a different word, but this one is an excrement stained garment. So essentially, it's a poopy diaper. That's, I, that's what sin, how sin is described, is in two different ways. But he uses two prophets through the Spirit of God to put sin in the proper perspective of some of the grossest thing imaginable. Now, those are gross to us. That's just putting it in, uh, that's an anthropomorphism, putting it into, into something we can understand. It's even worse than that to God. So Joshua was clothed in the grossest thing you can imagine. And that's how God views our sin. Now, so next time you change a poopy diaper or see one or smell one, you can think of your sin. (laughs) And sometimes that sin affects other people. And if you've ever had a child who's taken their diaper off in the crib, it affects their parents greatly. (laughs) Now, there are times where we start to think that maybe my sin is not so bad. Maybe I'm a little bit better than so-and-so because you know what? They're, they're, they don't seem to be as diligent as I am. Now nah, they can work a little bit harder. And I started thinking my righteousness is better. Not me necessarily, but just in general. Or maybe we start thinking someone's not as dedicated as we are. But it's not true. And as Christians, we need to realize that it is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness that he has robed us in. We should never think they need the blood of Jesus more than I do. We all need it equally. Paul himself described his own righteousness and he was blameless as far as the law was concerned for the Hebrews. He described his own righteousness as dung, as cow poop. Now verse four, the cleansing of sin and being robed in righteousness. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Now from Genesis to Revelation, we always have a picture of being clothed in the righteousness of God. From Adam and Eve's first sin, when they tried to cover up their own sin with fig leaves, God had to make the sacrifice to clothe them with something at the time was the best garment they could have. He put raiment on them. And then you find that all the way through Revelation. And you see pictures of it all the way through. In Revelation, we're all robed in white. 
So take off his filthy clothes. God says, change his diaper. Satan is there accusing him, yet God doesn't say, no, you're wrong. Joshua's a really righteous guy. He's really doing good things for me. See, when Satan comes to us and accuses God, he has to lie. He he can't tell the truth. There's nothing against God. But when Satan comes to God to accuse us, all he has to do is tell the truth. He doesn't have to lie. We're really that wretched. But God doesn't say that he's wrong. What he says is they're clean, not because of anything they've done, but because he's chosen an extended grace. The reason they are righteous is not their performance. It's not their perfection of performance in religious rituals, but it's the perfection of relationship. And that's what we have when we give our lives to Christ. We don't have some religion where we have to do certain things. We have a relationship that we develop, that we grow intimately with Christ. It's not anything I'm doing. I do things because of what Christ has done in me, not because I'm trying to earn anything. Now it says, see, I have taken away your sin. You notice it's God's work alone that the sin was taken away. It's nothing of Joshua. And then it says, I will put fine garments on you. It is God who clothes him in righteousness. Again, nothing of Joshua. You know, notice in the vision, Joshua is not arguing these points. He knows. And when he speaks of the garments here that he's being clothed in, the idea behind the clothing is that they're festive, as if they're worn to a wedding. Now, I think usually when we have weddings here, it's it's usually the same colors. It's usually the bride's dress is white. When you go to Cambodia, they are super colorful in their weddings. The first time we went, they were having a wedding right across the hotel where we were staying. And it was a huge gala, and everybody's in these super bright colors. And this is kind of what I imagine when it says festive clothing. Uh, And it was loud. In fact, I think the wedding went on until like 2 in the morning which was fine. It was interesting. Um, anyway, he speaks of clothes of, that are worn to a wedding. Isaiah sixty-one ten says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So he takes off the filthy, disgusting garments, everything that could never measure up to his standard. And he causes it to pass away. And then he clothes us with the garments of salvation. And those are wedding garments. Because we are the bride of Christ. We are going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. And and these are the things that this pictures. Now verse 5. Then I said. Now this is actually Zechariah talking here. Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. While the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, the turban was part of the priest's garments, and on the front of it, and Pastor Bill just went over all this stuff in Exodus, the phrase holiness to the Lord was there. And I think it's significant because his sin had been removed. He had been clothed in these new garments. He was now holy to the Lord to do the service that God had called him to. He was set apart. And that's what holiness means. It means to be set apart. He was set apart for service, and that was almost a symbolic putting on, okay, Now you're ready. You can do the work. Verse 6 through 8. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
if you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Joshua, symbolic of things to come. There are many types of Christ in the Bible, and there are several places where it mentions certain people as types of Christ, and this is one of them. So he is a model of Christ to come. Christ, who's going to be the ultimate high priest. The high priest was a picture itself of the branch that was to come. Now, branch is used several times as a title for the Messiah. In Isaiah 4.2, Isaiah 11.1, Jeremiah 23.5, and 33.15. The branch is associated with fruitfulness and life. Jesus uses a similar image when he said that he was the vine and we are the branches. He is the branch with which we get our life from, with which we draw tongue twister, with which we derive our life from. Now, Joshua, as mentioned, was clothed in filthy garments. Jesus knew no sin, yet he was clothed with the sin of the world when it was placed upon him at the cross, and he paid for that sin. So we see the picture where Joshua was filthy, and then it was taken away. Now, Joshua is also a picture of us in a way because we are a kingdom of priests as well. Our sin was also taken away and we are robed in righteousness. And we represent God to the people as the priest did. Verse 9. See the sown the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So this stone has seven eyes, which represents perfect vision or insight. It has an inscription engraved. And it says the Lord will remove the sin of the land in a single day. And that day the day that Christ died on the cross. The stone is Christ. It says in many places, several places, that he's the chief cornerstone. Jesus reiterates it himself. In Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, it says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down on the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So chapter 3. Well, actually, let me go through verse 10. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day always refers to the end of the day of, well, it always refers to the day of the Lord. Now, in this part of the day of the Lord, it refers to after the time of judgment on earth when Christ will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. 
And I've said this in the past as well. When it says under your vine and fig tree, that represents prosperity. You'll see that several times in scripture. It's a description of the reign of the Messiah in the millennium. Now, chapter one, God says, I've got everything under control. Don't worry about it. Chapter two, he's measuring Israel's history and he's measuring their future. He's taking responsibility for it. Again, he's saying, look, I'm in control. I'm preparing for it. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to minister to you in there. In chapter 3, Joshua is a picture of the nation. Satan is accusing, but Israel is a nation plucked from the fire. It's God's chosen nation. He's chosen them, and he's made them his own. And he's chosen us and made us his own as well. Not because they're deserving or we're deserving, and not because Satan's accusations are not untrue, but because he has cleansed us and robed us. Because he has a future for them, and he has a future for us. Now, chapter 4, which I will probably not finish, we'll begin right now. Verse 1. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from a sleep. I'm not sure how his visions coincided exactly. It seems like he fell asleep and then had another vision. Uh, And Zechariah is one of those prophets who, he doesn't always give clarity in some of his visions. He gives specific symbols and he says what they mean, but the in-between is hazy somewhat. Whereas you look at Daniel chapter 2 and you have this picture of this great stone statue. There's a crisp and a clear meaning to everything. It's got a beginning, it's got an end. Zechariah seems to go, well, I had this vision, then he maybe fell asleep, but he doesn't tell you he fell asleep. And then the angel came and woke him up. So he's got all these different things happening. What I think is interesting from this verse, though, is that sometimes, you know, we are, we get into our habits. We get into our, I'm going to church again, and we do all these things that are good, but sometimes we get stuck in a spiritual stupor so to sleep so to speak and we need to be awakened as individuals and as a church it's more like we need to be attuned to the things of the spirit making sure we're always listening each day to what god has to say and try to drown out the distractions of the world or we need to remember to let the spirit work and not hold back there's a a booklet called my heart christ's home uh, and I forget the name of the author. I think it was Munger or Unger or something like that. But you can look it up. It's not a very big pamphlet. But in it, he describes how he gave his life to Christ. And Christ was there every morning to meet him. And at some point, Christ was like, you know what? Let's clean out this room together. Like, okay, let's clean out this room. Well, let's clean out this room together. And then further along in the relationship, he goes, oh, there's something in that closet we need to deal with. And... The guy says, no, Lord, we're not going to touch that closet. Just leave it. I've given you everything else in the house. Just leave that closet alone. That's mine. And Jesus says, look, if you're not going to clean out that closet, I ain't going to live here. And and grudgingly, he goes, okay, Lord, we'll do it. And he goes through, and he finds that he feels a weight lifted when he allows Christ to go through and clean those things out of his life. And sometimes we get this idea where 
I'm doing all these things for the Lord. But Lord, don't take that. I don't, I don't want to give up that. I want to I keep going, but when we do that, we kind of get stuck in this area where we're not letting God work, and we're, not, we're sort of asleep to the things of the Spirit because if we're not going to let him work, he's not going to fight us on it. He's just going to say, hey, I want to work, but you've got to let go. So it becomes a question, not of how much of the Spirit do I have, but how much does the Spirit have me? How much of his presence and voice and personality is working through me? Is he going to find me, is he going to find in me hands to work and feet to walk and a voice to speak? We've got to let go and give up those things so that he can work. Now, I think I've brought this up a little bit already, but for me, when I do, I'm very easily distracted. There's a lot of things I'm interested in, but I limit myself to what I can do because I don't like to be distracted. I want to make sure I'm focused. And so for me, if I, um, I'll give you another example. This one also includes Chuck Norris. There was a, I was on Facebook and I have, Chuck Norris's page liked and he has this new app on the phone for a Chuck Norris game and I think it's actually called that the Chuck Norris game and throughout this game basically you don't do much you basically let the character beat people up and you I, I don't remember the premise I, I had on my game I had on my phone for two days and I was so distracted by it I had to get rid of it but it, the, the game goes through and tells Chuck Norris jokes through the game. Like, you know, when Chuck Norris jumps in the water, he doesn't get wet. The water gets Chuck Norris. Uh, or when Chuck Norris goes swimming, the sharks yell Chuck Norris. And it, it tells those jokes throughout the game. But I was so distracted by it that I was even upset with the kids for bothering me while I was playing the stupid game. And I realized that when Hannibal came to talk to me and I told her to leave me alone. And I was like, oh, what am I doing? And so I got rid of the game, and I went and spent time with her instead. But those things pull us away, and if we allow those things to dominate, it puts us in this spiritual stupor where all of a sudden we get distracted and pulled away from the things of God, and it takes the things of heaven to wake us up. And again, that's where letting go and letting God take control so that we don't get stuck in that kind of... Uh, we don't get stuck in that place. Verse 2. He asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. So, it says lampstand here. Now, in the book of Revelation, there are lampstands mentioned, and they represent the churches. That is not the picture here. Uh, we know from Ephesians that the church was a mystery in Old Testament times. The lampstand here actually represents Israel. And when Israel became a nation in 1948, they actually had someone's, people submit what Israel's national symbol was going to be, and it ended up being the menorah. And I, I don't think I gave a picture of that. But um, you can look up national symbol of Israel, and pictures of menorahs will pop up all over Google. Now, it says there are seven channels to each lamp, and there are seven lamps, so there are 49 channels total. It doesn't, actually, it's not very clear in the text 
that it says that. But in the Hebrew, there's seven lamps. And for each one of these lamps, there's seven channels that go to each lamp. So those channels have oil running through them to keep the lamps lit. So 49 total. So why so many? Now, it was a picture of perfection, of perfect completeness. That's what seven is. So when oil runs through it, and oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit, it is a picture of God's perfect work through Israel by his spirit. And that's the, the gist of the, uh, uh, this vision right here, but we're going to see more. Daryl, do you want to put up that picture? So this, when you type in Zechariah 4 vision on the Internet, there's about 30 pictures that are going to come up. Most of them are really goofy looking. Um, this is the less goofy one, and I don't even think this one's accurate. Because, um, like I said, it has one channel to each lamp. Um, from what I've read in several places, there are actually seven channels that go to each one of the lamps. So that's 40. So, verses 3 through 6. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So oil, the fuel that powers the lamps, oil or the spirit is the fuel that powers our walk. It powers our relationship. It powers everything we do. If we're not using the Holy Spirit, that means we're doing it in our own strength. And if we're doing it in our own strength, we may succeed for a while, but in the end, we're going to fail because we can't do it on our own. Now he says, this was the word for Zerubbabel. And so it was, though it was for Zerubbabel, it's still, like I said, it's still applicable to us. We still need these things. Now it says not by might. So not by human strength, not by power, not by mental cleverness on our part, by the power of the spirit. Now, others say might focuses on collective strength, so not by the power of an army. Uh, power focuses on individual strength. And basically, God is saying, however you want to look at it, it's not by your cleverness, it's not by the might of an army, it's not by your individual strength. It's only by the power of the Spirit that you can do these things. And when you look back at the vision, you can see that God wanted Zerubbabel to know that the Holy Spirit would continually supply his need. Just as the oil trees in the vision continually supplied oil to the lamps on the lampstand. And God wants his supply and our reliance on the Holy Spirit to be continual. Now God doesn't want... Well, let me go back. Zerubbabel was experiencing resistance as they were building the temple. And this, I've mentioned this already. And they were putting forth a great deal of effort. And he was probably weary. The process was long and drawn out. And when we put in our own effort, that's really how it feels. It becomes weariness to us. It doesn't become the privilege that it should be. But God doesn't want him to be discouraged. He wants him to know that he's going to do the work through him. Now, in the same perspective, God wants to build things in our lives as well. And these things take time. And you'll find that sometimes, or nearly all the time, it's almost never in your timing. It's always in God's timing. Because we don't understand his purposes. We don't understand 
the way he does things. A lot of times I'll look back and go, oh, now I see how that worked. If he'd have showed me beforehand, I probably would have been, well, let's just do it this way because I like that way better. You know, we always try to circumvent what our way is or what his way is because we think we know better. Kind of like my kids thinking they know better. Now, well, let's just go to verse 7. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Mighty mountain. In this case, the mountain may have literally been the mountainous pile of rubble that was on the site. It could also be representative of the obstacles that were standing in their way uh, of the completion of the temple. And you read commentaries, you'll find that both of those options come up a lot. But it really doesn't matter specifically. The principle is if you have faith and you let the spirit work, the mountain that's in the way is going to be moved. Even Jesus said, you have faith as a mustard seed. You can say to this mountain, move, and it's going to move. All Zerubbabel needed was faith and the work of the Spirit in his life, and the project was going to get done. Now, there are times when it seems God's called us to do something. And you're like, well, Lord, this mountain is standing in my way. I want to do it, but could you please get it out of the way? And sometimes God just wants us to persevere through it. Now, some people may feel called to Cambodia or another country, yet the door's closed. And some people feel called in their life, and they, they don't understand why God's called them, but they can't seem to get there. But what we can't do in our own human strength, God is willing to provide from heaven. And there, you can read books on missionaries from the past and present, and they'll tell you the obstacles and the mountains that were in their way and how God moved them miraculously because they allowed the Spirit to work. Another observation here is, as I mentioned before, Joshua the high priest, uh, he was the religious leader, or I may not have mentioned this. Zerubbabel was the political leader. He was the governor of the city. Now, whether in religious or political life, it's going to take the Spirit of God to move things forward. Now, I'm not opposed to people protesting. I think you should sign petitions. I think you should vote. But when we organize political agendas, it doesn't have any power without those who agonize in prayer with the spirit behind it. We have to make sure that if we're trying to move the country in a certain direction, it's not because of any human effort we're putting forth. It's always got to be agonized uh, in prayer by those warriors first and throughout. Verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have I... The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So Zerubbabel's encouragement is that he will get to finish what he starts. But he's going to finish it because, as again, the Spirit of God. Now, in the same way, when we become a Christian, we want to be more like Christ. We conform ourselves to him, his image. Yet it is not ourselves, but the Spirit of God who works in us. And... It can sometimes be frustrating in our walk when we stumble. And yet, even when that happens, we know that we can be confident because it says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Zerubbabel's encouragement was, you're going to complete this temple. You started it, you're going to complete it. God's encouragement to us is, look, I've started a work in you. I want to complete it through my spirit. Now, verse 10. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. So this is kind of a reproof to Zerubbabel for one of three reasons. One is they needed, they needed to stop thinking about how little had been done, stop dwelling on the past. They needed to, or two, they needed to not think the building of the temple was a small thing in God's sight because it says his eyes are roaming throughout the whole earth and yet he's here focusing on this little temple. The third reason, if you recall with me, that the glory of this temple was small compared to Solomon's temple. The elders who saw the previous temple wept in compar- when they looked at the comparison. So any one of those three reasons are valid. It may be all three. Um, each, they could all happen at once in the heart and physically. Now, it says God's eyes range throughout the whole earth, but he still rejoices in the small things that happen in our life. We are not so insignificant that his eyes are going to pass over us. Everything we do for him, no matter how small, it says no one, will ru- no one will lose their reward when they offer a child a cup of cold water. And that's a pretty, what seems an insignificant thing. But God sees it. He sees every small thing he's called us to do. He's not going to call us all to do something big. Sometimes it'll be a bunch of small things throughout our life. It'll be those small things that he's developing and building character in our lives. So don't ever be discouraged and compare yourself to what other people seem to be accomplishing. Some people do big things, but they do it only for themselves. Verses 11 to 14. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right hand and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out the golden oil? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, in context here, they're referring to Joshua and Zerubbabel. We see from Revelation that there is a far-reaching implication, but Joshua and Zerubbabel are symbolic forerunners, the two witnesses in Revelation. Now, according to... Uh, one Hebrew scholar, there are over 500 references in the Old Testament that show up in Revelation. Some of these references back to the Old Testament do speak of the very same thing in Revelation. However, others merely borrow a thought or an idea. Now, it does seem that Joshua and Zerubbabel were not the entire trees, but merely branches of these trees. But two but only two branches, one from each. And the trees themselves may represent kingly and priestly offices. Now, if they do represent these offices, then both Joshua and Zerubbabel are types of Christ to come, representing two of Christ's offices, king and priest. Now, his third office is prophet, which is not pictured here, but it seems that that's the case. Now, God had a special work for these two anointed ones. They would be uniquely anointed to work together and to accomplish the work of God. And God has an anointing on every person who claims to have faith in him. He's got a perfect plan for that person. 
for me, for you, for everybody. And so we need to make sure that we're yielded to the Spirit and that when we do do the work that he's called us to, it's not by might or by power, but by his Spirit who works in us. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I do thank you for the visions and the pictures you give us that teach us so many different things. And Lord, even though it's tough to dig through sometimes, it is very very rewarding. Lord, I do pray that your spirit would work in each one of us, that you would give us the anointing to do whatever mission it is you've set us on, whether big or small, as long as we're faithful, Lord, to do it. I pray that you would work in us and mold us and shape us into that individual that you want us to be. And we know that you're going to be faithful to complete that. Love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.